0: It's good to be together this morning. I encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to open them up to our text this morning in Colossians chapter three. Um, we just ordered some Bibles um, that I'm hope hopefully will be here soon. So that if you don't have a Bible in church, I just encourage you to bring your hard copy of your Bible. Um, our phones and tablets or whatever are um, they're okay, but we can get distracted on them, and it's it's good to have the printed text in front of us. So I encourage you to do that. So, several years ago, I was on a roof in Calgary. Before I became, um, before I pursued vocational ministry, I was trained as a journeyman carpenter and I specialized in new home construction. And one of the things I loved about that role and that job was working with various different, um, different people. And one guy that I worked with, his name was Evan. Him and I met in trade school, and I went to get him a job uh, building houses with us around Calgary. And so Evan and I, one summer morning, are out working on a roof. And if you've ever worked on a roof on a beautiful summer morning, it's a great experience. And and it's just him and I, for some reason. Uh, Other people in the crew were somewhere else. And Evan had just been attending some Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And he's been learning a lot about the concept of a higher power. Knowing that I attended church on Sundays, he looks at me and asks this question Hey, Adam, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? You know, I'd grown up in the church. My dad was a pastor. I've been attending church my entire life. I've worked in ministry in different ways, I've been leading worship for for a long time. But I don't think anyone had ever asked me that question point blank What does it mean to be a Christian? You know, as Evan was contemplating and thinking about spirituality, he was thinking about this question. And he looked at me and he asked it, and it led to a fantastic conversation where we unpacked this question and, and talked about church and talked about all sorts of things. But have you ever been asked that question? Has a neighbor or a family worker or a coworker, or friend or someone you're in school with came up to you and said, hey, you go to church on Sundays, right? Like, what's that all about? What does it mean to be a Christian? We might naturally begin to talk about our beliefs and the way that we see the world. We might talk about our behavior. It was funny when I worked in trades; um, I got kind of known as the guy who didn't swear, and it was really funny. He's like, "You don't swear? You must be one of them. You're a Christian. You don't swear. That's weird, right?" And when all the guys around me were, were swearing all the time, or whatever it is, so we might think about our behaviors. We might talk about our activities, that is, our reading of Scripture, our prayer life, attending church, all these different things. We might talk about relationship, a relationship we have with God and with one another, the Christian family. Well, maybe this morning you're just checking out church and and faith, and so when you hear this question, what does it mean to be a Christian, uh, you might be wondering that yourself. And uh, if you are, you're in the right place. That is the topic of our message this morning, but maybe you're here this morning and you've been attending church for many, many years. And as you think about that question, you go, yeah, what does it mean? What, what is the point of being a Christian? What does that actually look like? Or maybe you're here and you've been a Christian for years and you get excited at all the different answers that well up within you. But however you come this morning, we want to orient ourselves around Colossians chapter 3. And very specifically in verses 1 and 2, I believe that Paul is getting at how we might answer this question. What does it mean for us to be a Christian? How does Paul describe the Christian life? So let's jump into that. Well, in the previous section of Colossians, looking at chapters 1 and 2, Paul has been building a lot of theology, right? Theology this the whole idea of, of thoughts around who God is and what and and the reality of who god is affecting our lives he's been talking a lot about who jesus is he's been unpacking all these things and in chapter 2 paul begins to address what we believe were some of the issues in Colossae, and the issues that were happening in this small church was this the whole idea of they had different teachers coming in and they were distracting people from the true teaching of jesus they were telling them there was more uh, to following jesus than what paul would have talked about last week pastor Norb. taught on this text and and he unpacked these three ideas for us that that being a christian or life with jesus is not about rules or legalism it's not about experiences or mysticism and it's not about extremes or what we call asceticism and so as we get to the end of chapter two of the book of colossians it might lead very naturally to this question well what is it then if, if life with God or being a Christian or following Jesus isn't about rules, if it's not about my experiences and mysticism, it's not about extremes and asceticism, what is it about? What is the Christian life? Well, I believe that that is what Paul is answering. And, and he answers this, if this, this, well, what is it then question? He begins to answer it by saying, if you have been raised. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1. If you have Been raised. And I love this statement because it's almost like Paul is like drawing out of people. Well, are you a Christian? Have you identified your life with Jesus? He starts pulling at that. If you have been raised, if you've been baptized, if you identify with with the death of Jesus through baptism, and new life with him coming up out of the water in the symbol of baptism, if if you identify with him and all these things, if you've been raised, then this is what your life should look like. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul here is stressing that if we are Christians... It means that we are seeking the things above and we are setting our minds on the things that are above. Which again leads to another question, doesn't it? Well, what does he mean when he's talking about these things that are above? What is this? Well, Paul tells us. The things above, that's where Jesus is. And he highlights very specifically uh, that not only is this where Jesus is, but is where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. The right hand is the symbol of honor and prominence. Paul is calling all Christians to have this heavenly perspective. To seek the realities of heaven. To seek the realities of heaven. I think that there's two realities here that is emphasized. The first is that the heavenly reality emphasizes the lordship of Jesus. The heavenly reality emphasizes the lordship of Jesus. We don't use the word Lord in our culture, in our context, um, but it's this idea of Jesus being an ultimate authority. He is the Lord, He is the one who is in control. He is seated on the throne, He is our King. He is the one that we look to for direction and governance. He is the Lord. We read a bit about this in 1 Peter chapter 3 as well, where it says that Jesus who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. It is a powerful verse. So when Paul is saying we are to seek the things that are above, a part of that is that we are to seek Jesus' rule and reign. We are to seek his rule and his reign. In Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he teaches them to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we are seeking what is above, the above reality of that is Christ who is ruling and reigning, where his kingdom is established, his will is being done. So we desire that, we long for that. The second reality is that The heavenly reality emphasizes the goodness of Jesus. Because Jesus is ruling and reigning, because his will is being done, things are good. Where God's will is the air that is breathed and what is good and beautiful and right is unhindered. It is heaven. It's what you and I were made for. When we read scripture, we see that it is Jesus who gets to define and decide what is good and beautiful and best. And so when we look to heaven and we see him ruling and reigning, we understand that all that is good and beautiful and right is coming to pass. And this is exactly what we long for. I think when we look around our world, this is what everyone longs for. A heavily quoted um, Writing from Augustine in his book, Confessions, is that you have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. Within the human heart, there is this longing, this desire for things to be good and right. When we look at Scripture, we understand uh, in Philippians chapter 4, for example, when Paul talks about, well, what are the things that are above? What are some of these realities? He says that it is whatever is true. Honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy. These really are the realities of heaven. These are the things that we long for, that we are restless for, that we desire. So these things above, this first reality that Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning, the second reality that we see the goodness of of the the working out of his ruling and reign. These are the heavenly realities, and this is what Paul is telling us that we should seek after. When we look at this word seek, I think we we could rightfully say that our desire is Jesus. If we are a Christian, it means that our desire is Jesus. We are seeking the things that are above. We are desiring the things that are above. We desire God's rule and reign. We agree with the prayer, let let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are looking to Jesus as the one who defines what is good and beautiful and right and we desire for those things to be realized in our lives. And we understand what desire is, don't we? Desire is the athlete who orients their whole lives around training so that they can become the best athlete that they can. They devote their their schedule and their diet and all of their time and their energy into practicing and becoming the best that they can be. Why? Because they desire, they seek to be the best that they can be. Desire is a parent who endures with their children, who is patient with them. Who puts in time to, to learn their child and to know what is best for their child. Who, who spends time researching and learning about the best conditions for their child, for them to flourish. Why? Because they desire that their child will grow up and be the best that they can be. Desire is the entrepreneur who invests hours and hours into studying a specific market and investing money and energy into making the business profitable. Who puts in the time to see it come to pass. Why? Because they desire a successful business. In each case, whether an athlete or a parent or an entrepreneur, the desire to see something great come to pass is the fuel in the tank that moves them along. So as an athlete engages in their life with the ultimate desire being their top performance and success, so a Christian should engage in life with their top desire to be to know Christ. And to see his kingdom come in their life and in the world around them. To live by his authority and his goodness. Similarly, we understand that what we long for as people is ultimately met in Jesus alone. So we seek him. We desire him. We go after him to experience the life that we were made for. We orient our hearts towards Jesus. We take our longing to be happy and we direct it towards Jesus. We take our longing for satisfaction, we direct it towards Jesus. Our longing for belonging, for purpose, we direct it all to Jesus, believing that in him we will be satisfied. We look to him to experience all that is good and beautiful and right. So Paul instructs us to seek the things that are above. To desire what is above. But then he goes on and he adds to that. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Well, this naturally follows. Where he goes from um, teaching that we are to seek the things that are above. Now he's saying to set our minds on things that are above. Our minds are to be focused on Jesus. This is another part of what it means to be a Christian. Our minds are focused on Jesus. If our seeking and our desire... For Jesus' authority—sorry, if if in seeking and desiring Jesus' authority and goodness, uh, we need to recognize that our thought life should also be oriented around the same thing. In commanding that our thought life be about Jesus, Paul is stressing that our seeking of Jesus is not just about an emotion of our heart or some sort of wishful thinking. You know, we can think about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We can think about the goodness that we experience in Jesus Christ. And and we can say, yes, I want that. I want to live my life the way Jesus wants me to. I want to see his kingdom come on earth. These are good things, right? And we can say that this is our desire and our hope. But we might not allow that to actually impact the way that we live our lives. So here Paul is stressing that beyond wishful thinking or desiring that Jesus' rule and reign would be known in your life or that in him you would experience satisfaction, he's stressing that we need to regularly choose to think about Jesus. We make Jesus, a, as commentator Douglas Moo says, a habit of the mind. Jesus becomes a habit of the mind. It means we're praying continually as Paul instructs in First Thessalonians chapter 5. It means that we ask the question regularly of what would Jesus do if he were me in this specific situation? When you think about all the different ways you live your life, keeping Jesus in the front of your mind is to recognize that he is with you at home. He's with you in when you spend time with your family. He is with you in your work. He is with you in your grocery shopping and in everything that you do in your life. And when we keep him front of mind, it's it's a recognition of that. Brother Lawrence would would call that the practice of the presence of God, which is a meditating on the reality that Jesus is with us by the Holy Spirit always. You know, a way I like to think about this is uh, is the whole reality of wearing glasses. Um, I wear contacts probably 18 hours a day, which is maybe not good for me. But um, I do have glasses in case something goes wrong with my contacts or I get a headache or something like this and I need to take them out. Um, so I have these glasses. And when I think about thinking about Christ and, and thinking on things that are above, I think it's, it's kind of like glasses, right? And when I put on these glasses, everything that I see is seen through these lenses, Everything—well, now everything's fuzzy because I'm wearing contacts— but um, if I wasn't wearing my contacts, everything I'd look at would be kind of fuzzy. And then I put on these glasses, and suddenly they're brought into focus. And it's by these glasses by which I see everything else. When I think of Paul's invitation here for us to be people who are thinking about Christ, that we've set our minds on Christ, it's like wearing a pair of Jesus (laughs) glasses— That everything else that we see in our lives is seen through a lens of Jesus. That we don't separate any part of our lives from life with Jesus. He becomes the context. He becomes the lens by which we see everything else. Now I recognize that this isn't easy. And I think Paul recognizes that as well. Because in in contrast to the things of heaven are the things of earth. And he says that we're to think about the things of heaven, not the things that are on earth. But when I look around our world, I recognize and I experience on a regular basis that there is a lot for me to desire (laughs) that is of the earth. There is a lot for me to long for that is of the earth. Be it pleasure or experience, wealth or influence and power. All of these things call to my heart. They demand my thoughts. Advertising alone is beckoning our minds to think about certain things so that we will desire certain things. But it's this that Paul is contrasting. Paul recognizes that the things of the earth are, are calling to us, that the things of the earth want us to think about them. But Paul is saying, no, if you're a Christian, you're thinking about things of heaven. You're not getting caught up in the things of the earth. Your mind is on Christ, not on the things of the earth. And when we think about what, it, what does it mean, this whole idea of things of the earth, what is on earth? Well, biblically it's understood that earth was a, like a theater of sin, if that makes sense. Genesis chapter 3, when um, Adam and Eve sin, we read that the, the ground itself is cursed. So biblical theology looks at the earth um, and as well as the concept of the flesh. And, and it's this idea of things that are living against the will of God. The earth is where humanity's will has had the opportunity to run rampant in rejection to God. And disordered loves of men and women run rampant. And no matter how much they feel that their desire is being satisfied, it will always leave people wanting more. The things of this earth are anything that is, um, is lived which is counter to God's will or his desire or his best. So when we think about setting our minds on things above, it means that focusing our mind on Christ is a bending of our will. It's choosing to see things the way God sees them. It's recognizing that, yeah, I have these longings, and and sometimes these longings are to do things counter to what God has for me. Sometimes these longings are invitations for me to pursue a type of life or a lifestyle that, that God doesn't desire for me or that isn't best for me. So setting my mind on Christ is bending my will back to heaven where what? Where Christ is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. And where I will truly experience his goodness and be satisfied in a way that the things of the earth could never, ever satisfy me. Well, I believe that Paul seeks to help make it easier with these, not these invitations, these commands that we would seek the things of, of heaven and set our minds on the things of heaven He gives us two friendly reminders. The first friendly reminder is that we are dead. He says that you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now Paul's been building on this idea throughout the letter of Colossians, specifically in chapter 2. If you just flip back one page, uh, we read in chapter 2, verse 11, um, that in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised you from what the dead so paul here is saying well you don't need to live for the things that are on the earth because you actually died to things on the earth don't you remember And when we do baptisms at church, and I hope that you've all been baptized. If you're a follower of Jesus, it is something Jesus demonstrated for us and commands us to do. But the image we have in baptism is one of death and then rising to new life. And Paul is reminding this church of, hey, you guys have been baptized. You've died to things of the earth. You've been raised to new life with Christ. Your life is not like the life you once lived on earth. Your life is now like what Jesus is demonstrating for you in the heavens. You have died. And he says that your life is now hidden. Your life is now hidden in Christ, which is a theme that Paul's been picking up as well throughout the letter. This idea of that in Jesus, there's a hiddenness of of his goodness and his greatness. And we... As we learn more about him, as we grow in our understanding of Christ, we come to understand more and more the mysteries of heaven, the mysteries of the person of Jesus. And so Paul is saying that our very lives are now hidden in Christ. He says that the benefit of living this life, a life that is contrary to the world, A life that is set on Christ, that its mind is fixed on Christ. The benefit is that is that despite the difficulty at times, our full life, our abundance, our satisfaction will be found in Christ. Sometimes we don't experience that in an immediate sense. Sometimes we long for it and it feels like it's far away. Sometimes we wonder, God, where are you? But we keep our hearts focused on Christ. We keep our minds set on him and we discover life abundant in him the second reminder is that the second reminder is that we will appear with him that there's this future reality when Christ who is your life appears then you also will appear with him in glory here paul is stressing the future reality The future benefits of us following Jesus. And it's very similar to what John says in 1 John chapter 3. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. This morning in our worship, we've been singing songs about this heavenly reality. And Paul here is stressing and reminding us that there's a future motivation to us living our life for christ the bible teaches us that the earth will pass away that we will move into eternity and a promise of a text like this gives us great hope gives us great hope so when we think about perhaps the difficulties of living a life where Our desire is oriented towards Christ and that our minds are set on Him, that we're choosing to follow Him no matter what. And we recognize that that's contrary to the world and and sometimes we struggle with that. We found difficulty in that. Paul encourages us to say, friends, you've died. Christ is now your life. And guess what? When He appears, you will appear with Him in glory. So we might say, to summarize a bit of Paul here, that the Christian is one who lives their life looking to Jesus. What, it? what does it mean to be a Christian? What is a Christian? It's one who lives their life looking to Jesus. I've set my heart upon Him. My desire, my longing is for Christ, His rule and reign and His goodness. And I spend my energy focusing my mind on Him, praying continually. Meditating on Christ, asking what he would do if he were me in this exact situation or circumstance. Now this doesn't mean that the desire of a parent or an athlete or an entrepreneur, whatever other desires that you have, it doesn't mean that they're wrong or bad. It means that as the athlete trains in their athleticism, They do it in the context of a heart that longs for more of Jesus. That as the parent parents their child, it means that they do so with the greatest goal of seeing the ruling and reigning of Christ be realized in the life of their child. It means that as an entrepreneur goes about their business, uh, they do so with their heart and their, their mind fixed on Christ. Not only asking how a business can be successful, but how it can bring glory to God. These verses that Paul gives us shows us the context in which you and I are to live our lives. I think this is a great idea, isn't it? To live Jesus-focused. I know that I want this. I long for this. But sometimes I struggle. And I think oftentimes we can recognize this. Okay, I live my life set on Christ. But what does it actually look like? Well, Paul actually unpacks that for us. Uh, most commentators look at this section of chapter three of Colossians as a, a shift in the book. Where if chapters one and two, Paul has been talking about um, all this theology and who is Jesus and all of this, chapter three, he gets into okay, what is the outworking of this? And this section, chapter three, we could say is broken up into three parts. The first is what is, how is a Christian supposed to think? What is their thought life? The second part is what shouldn't a Christian do or what should they put to death? And then the final section is, what is a Christian to put on? Um, so I've covered the first section. I'm going to move into the second, and Pastor Nor will be picking up the third um, in uh, next week. So as we look at this idea of, of having our lives oriented towards Christ, again, it's a great idea. I, I love this quote I came across uh, that Norb kind of alluded to already this morning, that being heavenly minded does not mean we live with our heads in the clouds. <laughs> So we don't get caught up in this, you know, verse 1 to 4 reality and just kind of lock ourselves away. But there's a practical outworking of it. Paul goes on in verses 5 to 17 to begin to outline what a life of seeking and setting our eyes on Jesus should look like. So I'm going to unpack the first of these. And in the first group here, we see that seeking and thinking about the things above requires that we will actively work to put sin to death. Seeking and thinking about things above requires that we will actively work to put sin to death. Paul goes on here to first list five vices of the flesh. Five vices of the flesh. This is a life that is ruled by the flesh or by desire. And it's interesting in our cultural moment, because I think that our culture looks at the desires of our flesh and they believe that freedom is found by this kind of unhindered expression of the flesh. That we, whatever we desire, whatever we feel, whatever we long, we just live out of that. And that is true freedom. You'll find freedom as you do that. Now interesting that the Bible teaches the actual, actually the opposite of that. That when we live under, out of this expression of the flesh, we're actually in slavery. And we're in slave, slavery to our flesh. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7, where he's recognizing that there's behaviors and things that he's doing that he does not want to be doing. There's things that he finds himself engaging, and he's like, I don't want to do this, but I find myself doing this. He's hinting at this idea of a slavery to sin, a slavery to his flesh. It's not freedom. Freedom is found in Christ alone. So Paul here lists these off, and he says that as we set our minds on things above as we desire the things of above that are above we need to put these vices to death he says put to death therefore what is earthly in you he starts off we put to death sexual immorality now in the new testament whenever we read sexual immorality it's referring to all kinds of sexual impurities In the Greek, it's porneia, where we get our English word pornography, of course. Um, And this is understood to be any sexual activity outside of God's standard. Uh, Jesus taught on sexual immorality, as did Paul. And there's no reason for us to assume that they had a different sexual ethic than what was laid out in the Old Testament. And God's standard is... For sexual activity that we read about in the old testament is that all sexual activity is reserved for the context of a marriage relationship between one man and one woman to the exclusion of all others and i would say that this includes looking at pornographic images or having sexually explicit conversations with someone that you are not married to paul says we should put this desire to death he goes on we put to death impurity Impurity is living in commitment to a lifestyle outside of God's intent. We are to put to death passions, lusts, and evil desires. Which is to recognize that there's longings that we have to experience what we know is outside of God's best for us. And Paul's saying, put those desires to death. These longings, these things that you feel are pulling you forward. Put them to death. He says, put to death covetousness or greed. Greed is the constant longing for more. The constant longing for more and the refusal to allow yourself to be content with what you have or what God has or is providing for you. Paul calls greed idolatry because in greed we seek something other than God for ultimate security. Now, on, after looking at these first vices... He makes this statement that on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And in these too, you once walked when you were living in them. Paul is highlighting this reality. You know, we get so excited about this eternal hope, this return of Christ where, where we will be revealed with him in glory. It's this beautiful thing, but it's also a reminder to us that there are eternal consequences to seeking things of earth rather than the things, rather than seeking Christ. That's why Paul is calling them to put Put it to death. There is an eternal reality to all of this. You will stand before God. There will be a final judgment. When people hear this, they're like, that's not really nice teaching. (laughs) You know, and it's like, well, sure. But this is what Jesus talked about. If you want to study final judgment and hell in the New Testament, what do you read? Is it all in Revelation? No. Is it in Paul's letters? No. Where is it? It's in the Gospels. Jesus teaches on hell and final judgment more than anyone else in the Bible. And this, this same Jesus that our culture actually holds up and says, man, he was a great teacher. He, he had some really good things to say. He teaches us to love our enemies and all these great things. He also taught on a final judgment. And Paul reminds us of that reality. There is an eternal reality to our existence. How we live our lives matters. We need to live our lives seeking Christ, desiring Christ, putting to death these vices of the flesh. But Paul is not done. In addition to these five, he goes on to list six more. And where the first five were about sinful indulgences, these final six are about sin that corrupts our relationships, okay? Sin that corrupts our relationships. And He says, But now you must put them all away. Anger and wrath. Anger and wrath are the fruits of unforgiveness that destroy relationships. You want to get specific. Anger is what we kind of harbor inside of ourselves. The the thing that goes through our minds. We're angry at someone. Wrath is the outworking of that. We need to take off malice. Which is ill will or ill intent. Which is acting towards another person with the intent to harm them. Be that physically or with your words. It's maliciousness. When someone does something harmful to you intentionally. That is malice. We need to take that off. Paul says we need to take off slander, which is speaking poorly against someone's character. We might call this gossip. Put it off. Get rid of it. He says we need to get rid of obscene talk or filthy language. I loved um, N.T. Wright describes this as words that contaminate both the speaker and the hearers. If you're a Christian, those types of words should not come out of your mouth. I was right not to swear on the job site. He goes on, do not lie to one another. Lying to one another is a means of manipulating and controlling situations for personal benefit. In this list of six vices, Paul is calling us to put to death that which destroys relationships and reduces fellow human beings from being image bearers of God to something unworthy of dignity or respect. That is why it is not okay. As a Christian, we take these things off. We take off anger, malice, slander, obscene talk. We don't lie to one another. We seek to live at peace with one another. Paul is getting at the reality that a Christian's conduct towards others matters. It's not that profound of a thought, is it? But maybe some of us need a reminder of that this morning. I know at times in my life I need a reminder of that. Now, I do not think in this moment that Paul is, Paul's goal is to make his readers feel guilty. Rather, I think he's calling us to activity. And it's funny, if you're like me, you probably like some of these lists in the New Testament because you can read through them and go, sexual morality, no, not doing that. And you read through them, obscene talk, no, I'm not doing that either. I'm, I'm doing great. I'm a great Christian, right? We read them like a checklist or something. And that's not the purpose Paul is, his goal in this is to not make people feel bad about themselves. That's not what he's after. He's after them living in the freedom that Christ has for him. So his goal in this is for them to engage in an activity. And the activities that he has listed specifically are to put these things to death and to put them away. And as you maybe hear these words or consider this list, perhaps you become aware of distorted desires in your own heart. Maybe when you hear this list about relational sins, you, you are aware of people that maybe you're harboring unforgiveness or bitterness towards. You can think of people you feel, feel angry about and, and, want to, and want to pour out wrath upon them or whatever it is. I want you to allow that conviction not to simply sit with you feeling some sort of guilt or shame, but rather allow it to turn into two practices. The practices of repentance and confession. Repentance is the idea of changing your mind before God. It's not simply saying, okay, what I did was wrong. But it's, it's looking at that thing and, and, and seeing it and saying, yeah, I, that is wrong. And I, I choose not to live that way anymore. Within the word repentance in the Greek is this picture of a 180 degree turn. Of saying, I, I recognize this is wrong and I'm choosing not to live like that any longer. So we repent. But the other thing that sometimes is missed is the practice of confession. Coming before God or coming before another. And sharing with them a struggle that you have. An area of sin in your life that you're, you're struggling to deal with or to control or whatever it is. And come before them and, and re, repent before them and confess to them this sin. It's the, simply the act of sharing. The purpose of confession is to lead to freedom in our lives by bringing sin into the light and empowering us in our walk with Jesus. Paul goes on. He said that we've put on this new self, this new life in Christ, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Friends, this is what I long for. The New Testament teaches us that God's heart for us is that we would become more like Jesus. And Paul's reminding us of that reality here in Colossians chapter 3. That as we seek the things that are above, as we set our minds on things that are above, we actually become more like Jesus. A renewing is taking place. And I cannot leave this portion of Scripture without talking about the practice of reading Scripture. Because how does this conformity to Christ come about? Well, it's as we seek him, as we set our minds upon him, that those practices are so strengthened as we add to them the practice of reading scripture. Sitting with God in his word, reading his word, listening for him to speak, responding to his word when we we hear him speak, allowing the word of God to be uh, more than just words on a page, but the authority by which you live your life. And as we sit and grow in our understanding of God's word, I believe that what we read about in Colossians 3 verse 10, we experience this renewal in knowledge after the image of God, the image of our creator. We become more like Jesus. So we're in a new year. Perhaps you've already started a Bible reading plan and you're already seven days behind. That is okay. Keep going. Um, I'm not a huge fan of um, Bible reading plans that have dates attached to them. So if you have dates attached to your Bible reading plan, you just cross them all out. I said it's okay. Um, Only because it demotivates us at times, right? Um, And then we get into this catch-up thing where we're not really reading our Bibles. We're just skimming through to try to check off all these boxes. And that's not the point of reading Scripture. The point of reading Scripture is to be with Jesus. So if the dates in your Bible reading plan are throwing you off, just cross them off. And just be in the Word. Spend time with Jesus in His Word. Say, Jesus, I want to seek you. I want to know you more. I want to see you for who you are. I want to hear from you how you desire for me to live my life. And I want to respond to you in obedience. And so we sit in his word as a way to hear his voice. And so many times I've done this where there's been things going on in my life that, um, you know, things aren't going great or there's questions I have or or whatever it is. And I'm praying about those things and I'm bringing them before the Lord. And then I get into his word and it's like, it's like he hit reply on my prayer. And like, that's what I'm reading. And he speaks directly into those situations. Be it my doubt, be it my frustration, be it some sort of depression that's creeping in, whatever it is, I find over and over again, God speaks back to me in his word. And he invites me more into this life of abundance with him. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come forward. So friends, I was not eloquently able to Explain to Evan on that roof, however many years ago, what the Christian life looked like by unpacking Colossians chapter 3 for him. It's probably a grace in a lot of ways. But the Christian life is focused on Christ. We set our hearts on things above. We set our hearts on Jesus. We look to Jesus. We set our eyes on him, our minds upon him. We seek his rule and his reign. We seek the goodness that can only be found in him. We bring to him all of our longing and we choose to engage in life the way that he desires us to. Which oftentimes means that we're engaging in the practice of repentance and confession. Let's uh, let's close together and pray. And I just want to pray Colossians 3, 1 to 4 over you. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this journey in Colossians that we've had up to this point. And Lord, as Paul turns a bit of a corner into kind of this practical application of what does this look like. Lord, thank you for the reminders that come to us in these words. And so Lord, may we remember that we are a people who have been raised with you, Lord Jesus. And God, by the power of your Spirit, I pray that you would help us to be a people that seek the things that are above. Jesus, that you would help us to see you, the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father, who is ruling and reigning. And Lord, as we see you, may we see your goodness. And Lord, may we long for it. Lord, I pray by the power of your Spirit that you would help us to set our minds on things that are above not on things that are on earth. And God, you are well aware of our distractions. You are well aware of the temptation we feel daily and the invitations we have daily to set our minds on things of the earth. But we just invite your spirit, Lord Jesus, to help us to set our minds on things that are above. Lord, may we remember that we have died to the things of earth and that our life Our full life, the abundant life that you have for us is hidden with Christ. And Lord, help us never to lose sight of the hope that when you appear, Lord Jesus, when you return, we will also appear with you in glory. In Jesus' name, amen.